Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. Hey, friends, welcome. Hi. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with another one of Kosha's high school friends. This season's all about Kosha's high school friends. I went to a pretty diverse high school and I was in theater. So there have been, there were a lot of people who are on the like gender and sexuality spectra who at the time were on their journey and now are out. Theater and art is definitely a kid, place where, for kids who don't feel like they fit in to go because it is creative. It is, you know, having a different perspective is valued. Being weird is, is like valued. He is a high school friend. He's two years younger than me. So he called himself middle age and I'm like, ew, I don't like that. But <laughs> um, his name is Mark Perry. He is hilarious. Mark, after, after high school, actually pursued theater as, you know, in, in college. Professionally. Um, and after that, professionally. yes. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was really interesting is how his career progression, his career journey also sort of tracked with his identity journey and sort of how those two things were linked in time, if nothing else, but also how certain parts of doing a certain job helped him get in touch with who he was. I said, Mark mentions himself as, uh, as middle age as a, like jokingly, but at the same time he talked about, I think there are other stories that need to be told because he is a 40 year old, uh, white man, affluent cisgender. He's like, I kind of am the old story. There are newer, more kind of pressing stories to tell. And I thought that was insightful and I really appreciated it. But I thought, given what we're going through now with abortion rights and things like that, like we have to keep telling old stories are not so old. We have to keep telling those old stories to remind everybody that it wasn't that long ago that Mark's story was not old. Right. Absolutely. The final thing I'll add onto this is there is a point at the end where Mark is is saying something and takes really amazing direction from from Kosha about something he said. Um, I encourage all of our listeners to like listen to the end for that because what I see is an ally, 100% someone who's willing to put their privilege on the line and to hear what people have to say when they get feedback on something they have said or done. Talking to Mark was really inspiring for me that way. He specifically tells me 
not to edit something out. I love hearing these stories and I love seeing my friends all grown up. (laughs) So um, enjoy, enjoy Mark Perry. Uh, We get a little glimpse of his home life with his husband, Michael, too. It just was so fun. So yeah, uh, he is speaking. I would have happily sat through that. You would have? I'm really, well, compared to watching the news, I certainly would have watched Sagwa. Yeah, that's true. The friendship cat, you know, like. The friendship cat. All I know in Sagwa is that she had, so Sagwa was like a little um, Chinese. It's a Siamese cat. Yeah. Siamese cat, like a Chinese. It was like Mm -hmm. all the characters had Chinese names. She had a Mm -hmm. bat best friend, which I was like, really? (laughs) And that's all I knew about it. Huh? Is that why? Is that why you're so into bats now? Is that like no. why it's this is not a thing? the reason? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did research on bats in college. Oh, it was like a professional thing. It was a prof- It was an academic thing. Yes, correct. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. But uh, so, and then our little cousin would go around. Um, she's like 14 years story. younger, than, or 19, 18 years younger than me, or something. So she would go around licking people and oh. her, her mom, our aunt was like, oh my God, stop doing that. Like what gross, like stop licking me. And so she made her stop licking her. And then our little cousin went up to her mom and was like, do you not love me? And she's like, of course I do. What, you know, why would you ask that? And this is at a different time was like, of course. And she, like goes, she was like three or four years old. Yeah. She go, our cousin was like, well, Sagwa's, Sagwa's mom licks her to tell her that she loves her and you never lick me. And so it was like really cute because it was like, that's mm-hmm. why she was licking people. It wasn't just to be yeah. a little kid and be gross. But uh, <laughs> I mean, it was to be a little kid and be gross, but right, not just right. to be a little kid and be gross. Right. There was like another layer to it. So <laughs> yeah, this is Mark. And hello, Mark. So we're going to start. For people listening at home, I just waved. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it, there's a few of those. You will forget that uh-huh, we're on yeah. camera. So uh-huh. um, are you comfortable using your husband's name or do you want us to say partner, husband? How do you want? Husband is great. Okay. Hey there. My name is Mark and I'm talking. No, you're speaking. I am. Is it I am or I'm? I am speaking. I am speaking. And do you, do most people use last names or no for this part? Um, we've had two people who have not because they were not out at work. And so they okay. wanted to be, they had to be anonymous, but uh, it's really up to you. Yeah. Okay. You want to do it one more time? Sure. Hi, my name's Mark and I am speaking. Hi, Mark. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you guys. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I love that you guys are doing this. This is um, important stories that you guys are telling. Thank you. We have, we felt that way in the beginning and it's been, we started <laughs> talking about it um, right around the election, right? The I am speaking comes straight from Kamala Harris um, from the, <clears throat> the VP debate when she yelled at the old white guy to your point about, you know, white men um, trying to like always always taking up the space, always taking up the room. And um, then we really didn't know how important some of these stories would become Mm -hmm. and how much they've changed us. Like just, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really just informed how I, I go through the world too. So yeah. Yeah. 
I don't have a script. I have notes mm-hmm. based on a couple of topics that I think we might want to explore, but it's a work in progress. It's always fluid. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also a lawyer, so I'm perfectly comfortable going, I'm not going to comment on it. Oh. <laughs> That's good. I like that. I um I have media training. I don't I um I'm not a lawyer, but I had I have a lot of media training for advocacy work. And one of the things I love about that is like the notion that you don't ever have to answer the question that's being asked. Yeah, I, I reject your effort to control what I'm going to say. Right, right. Like the, one of the best things about being on TV or on the radio is that's an interesting question, but I really want to talk about. You know who does that like extremely well is Elizabeth Warren. Have you ever seen her on like? Oh, she's great. Elizabeth Warren is my Patronus. That is the media training. That's all media training because there are someone's always going to ask you something about like, what about blah, blah, blah? Well, that's a really interesting question, but I'm really here to talk about, uh-huh. you know, taxing millionaires. Mm-hmm. Something about, um, like, Mitch McConnell won't even, like, say hi to her in the hallway or something. And so Stephen Colbert <laughs> asked her, like, do you, what do you do? And she goes, I wave and I say hi. And, and he said something like, uh, you know, how does that make you feel or something? And she goes, I, you know, I don't get upset. You know what really upsets me? She dug into, like, Pivot. I know. I was like, yeah. That was beautifully done. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, that comes from being a professor and the smartest person in the room, always, always. And a woman, because you're always being boxed into some sort of petty garbage. Yep. Oh, does she feel bad because Mitch McConnell won't wave to her? No, she doesn't fucking feel bad. She's in your job. She doesn't need Mitch McConnell's like, hi. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this isn't great. This isn't middle school. She needs votes, not waves. All right, so we are talking to Mark Perry. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dig into your story? God, whenever anybody asks me that, I always wonder what aspect to talk about. All right, so I'm technically middle-aged, which is maybe the first time that I've said that out loud. (laughs) I live in New York. I grew up uh, with Kosha, and we went to high school together. After high school, I went to theater school. Um, I worked professionally and semi-professionally, and then I went to law school. I was in New York City for 10 years. The pandemic kicking up, my husband and I decided that we needed a little bit of extra room so that he could make a pivot in his career. And we decided to move upstate. I was going to say, so you don't kill each other? I mean, that's what a lot of people are doing, like construction on their homes and stuff for. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's a certain amount of that. Um, So we've been together, like, I think nine years. And the first eight of that, I traveled a lot for work. Mm. We sort of hadn't realized until COVID the strong foundation of apartness that our relationship is built on. I'm 100% with you. Honey, I'm going to go to the grocery store now. I love you. Goodbye. I'm just going to go yeah. sit in the car for a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think Kosha and I can both relate to that because Kosha does a lot of driving around as a, you know, as a pharmaceutical rep, often, you know, on the road for most, if not all of the day, her partner is at home, you know, working in his shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, My partner is in corporate finance and has been doing a lot of investor relations for most of his career. So back forth, back forth, a lot of back and forth. And uh, now all of the IR conferences are now from the other side of our office space. And I'm like, oh, I literally cannot hear you tell that joke one more time. <laughs> like, I love you a lot, but like that's- But I may also have to kill you. Yeah. 
which is not his general personality. Yeah, code switching is a real thing. That's exactly what it is, yes. I, I do that all the time because I work in construction law and I'm constantly around contractors and lawyers that do that kind of thing. And I never quite know whether I'm going to drop into like super butch, mm-hmm. hard guy mode, or if just to mess with people, I'm going to like get really campy and super gay. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun because like I have a case in Louisiana and like these guys have no idea how to deal with a homosexual, but they know enough to like not hate crime me. And yeah. so when I get super <laughs> gay and like show up with my nail polish, they just sort of get really quiet and don't know how to interact with me. And it's a lot of fun. Don't hate crime him. Don't hate crime Maybe him. if we don't look at him, he'll go away. That's kind of exactly right. They're like, I don't know how to talk to him. Will the gay run rub off on me? Like, am I gay now? Right, right, right. They might catch it. <laughs> yeah, boy, oh yeah. boy. Oh boy. <laughs> so we've established a couple things here. You are gay. You are married. You live in upstate New York. You work in construction law. Yep. Construction law and insurance law. It's super fun. Yeah. <laughs> what was the transition from theater to law school to construction law? Like they're all the same thing. I can see how they would come together in backstage, like the interest in theater, right. building, all the backstage stuff. But the journey was really uh, quite around the outside of the circle. So I'd really love for you to walk us through sort of like, how did you go from one thing to another to a third? That's actually a really good way to say it, sort of on the outside of the circle like that. I guess if we go chronologically, my dad was a pipe fitter, so like a plumber, but for gas pipes. And my grandfather was an airplane mechanic in the service during World War II and a carpenter and a stained glass guy, hobbyist. But so I grew up with a tool belt. When I was 12, we replaced my parents' roof. I'm really glad you finished that sentence. Because I heard you say, we replaced my parents. <laughs> just like, no, 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 no. That? There's no replacing Joan Marie Perry. Yeah, I can't even. <laughs> nope. No, no, no. I was going to say, nothing with that little elbow grease won't fix. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, and so, like, even in, in high school with the theater stuff, I was always building stuff backstage and interested in, like, electrics and how things fit together. So then I went to theater school where my major was dramaturgy. Turgy is the German suffix that is the same as the Latin ology. So it translates to the study of drama and dramatic structure. So I was the nerd in the production room. Take the specifics of the play, apply them to the theory, like dramatic theory, and then try to help everybody else understand what's really going on inside the play. So for instance, um, I don't remember the answer to this anymore, but like, why does Ophelia have to drown? Why can't she hang herself? Like that is a, there is a reason for that. I don't remember what it was. You know, you're taking the facts of the situation and applying them to the theory of the situation. And then you're trying to convince other people that you're right in your analysis, which is exactly what lawyering is. Uh, Now I went to law school on the theory that I was going to help save the world because I spent a lot of time realizing that I was making theater about people who changed the things around them and realized that I should just do that instead of telling other people to do that. Unfortunately, I graduated law school in 2010, which was the worst uh, job market since the 1920s. 
and I became a waiter when I graduated law school. And I spent about a year and a half in New York City waiting tables. I got a job as a temp, as a lawyer temp. From there, it was full time, but it paid like $30,000 working for one of those like shyster plaintiffs, personal injury lawyers. That lasted about a month and a half. Then I went back to temping. I ended up getting a full-time job because in, with a, a firm that does insurance law because of uh, Hurricane Katrina, there being a lot of uh, cases in New Orleans. And so then I just sort of kept going on with that. You do the work that you're offered. And that's sort of where I am in real life. I'm still doing some theater stuff and sort of trying to make my way back to that eventually. But the bread and butter is you know, representing construction companies when they get sued for being bad at what they do, sure. allegedly. Yeah. That's how you ended up in law school. Yep. Were you, and that was in New York, right? Law school was at the University of Illinois. Oh, okay. So why did you go back to New York for not lawyering? Right. So I had been in Chicago for uh, seven years before I went to law school. So you theatered in Chicago? I theatered in Chicago and I worked for a communications company when I was there. Um, And I sort of felt like I knew Chicago and I wanted a new challenge. I wanted to be farther away from the people I knew. I wanted to take the training wheels off and I wanted to work in nonprofit stuff. And then big nonprofits are in New York and in Washington, D.C. And if you're licensed in New York, there's reciprocity with D.C. So I got licensed in New York. I see. And the plan was to work for a nonprofit. And then that sort of went belly up. Wow. Okay. So you were here and then you went to New York and that's where you were thinking you would get into law. And then of course you did eventually, but uh, not after a bit of a little bit sideways. How does that layer on from a timeline perspective with your coming out story? Back when I knew Kosha, like when I was in high school, I had no idea that I could be gay. I knew that gay people existed. Um, we learned about AIDS in health class, good old coach full and wider. I totally remember. (laughs) We watched and the band played on. That's how I knew about gay people. Yep. That's how you knew that gay people existed. Pretty much. Yeah. That and, um, yeah, pretty much that. Well, and that, and like, if you're gay, you're going to die because you're going to contract HIV and that's the end of that story. Kind of. Yeah. And I mean, at the time, I mean, the, the media representation was very, very different at the time. This was before Will and Grace. This was even um, like before Sex and the City. So basically, if gay people were on TV, they were a very sad warning. They had to somehow come to a negative end. Um, But that really wasn't part of my zeitgeist is what I was going to say. So like it didn't, I knew that they existed. I just didn't know that, that I could be one. And people are like, what do you mean you didn't know you could be like, I, it never occurred to me any more than it occurred to me that my friend Maurice was black when I was in junior high. I mean, obviously I looked at him, I could see him, but it just didn't, the, the synapse didn't connect. But I definitely had the nickname Fairy Perry. And so other people were already seeing it in me before I did. And, and talking to some of my high school teachers, in fact, after the fact, said that they had suspicions and had wondered as well. Hmm. Because you were, you, you were effeminate. 
Sure. Would you say, or, I mean, is that why? I don't know. I mean, looking back at like yearbook photos and stuff, I was a mess. Um, like I had no sense of, I don't know, style or presence or whatever. I mean, I do remember a lot of like hand gestures and things. Yeah. Maybe flamboyant more than effeminate. Cause okay. I don't really feel like I was very girly. Although I did go to like dance camps and choir camps and like that kind of stuff. So I guess I do fit that category. You know, if I, if I look back at the other, I'll say pre-queers that I knew then that I still know now, I was probably a little bit butcher mm -hmm. than some of them. Than like my ex-boyfriend, for example. For example. <laughs> yes. And he was actually the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I love him. Oh, like, that I, that I, one? No, we're talking about the first one. Are you talking about the first one? That it was practically a drag queen. Yeah. Which, looking back, I kind of respect. So, Koshi, you and I have talked about mm -hmm. the, the tough part about being in the closet. I'm going to rephrase that. The secondary tough part about being in the closet is that it unintentionally forces you to hurt other people. You know, even when I was on my process of figuring out and eventually coming out, I don't think I had the guts to embrace it at the time. And like to this day, using the phrase I'm gay feels awkward and weird and uncomfortable to me. And so like when I come out, I don't use that phrase. I just make a casual reference to my husband or something like that, which feels much more comfortable to me. But to have the chutzpah, the gumption to use the phrase gay pride or wear rainbows or the, the sort of traditionally stereotypically gay hand gestures and things in 1997, there's a certain amount of ballerness to that that I, that I do respect separate from the he used you aspect of it the 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 flamboyant the the unapologetic campiness that really is part of our history he had he was able to embrace that bef way before i was so my question is but he was not but he was in the closet right so he so when you say that do you mean like I don't know. It's weird because he was in the he was in the closet, but he was also super gay. Right. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. I think sometimes people people can disassociate parts of their personality, right? So that or they disconnect, right? So people's mannerisms, their the way they talk, they they can be drawn to something that speaks to their identity mm -hmm. and they can still deny who they are. Right. Kosha and I have a friend who we love dearly and for the longest time would like, he was like, he was a don't touch my hair guy, frosted tips, you know, lip gloss, nails manicured just so, clothes done just so, very much demonstrate giving off a gay vibe. Mm -hmm. And denied up and down and sideways into the last week and into next month that he was gay until he felt safe to come out. Right. Yeah. And so I think mm -hmm. little 
nobody can deny who they are completely. So they find the things that feel safest for them. And then they can still deny. No, I just like my hair to look a certain way. No, I just want to dress a certain way. No, I just like to be an ice skater. Right. Well, and, and this is part of being an ice skater or whatever right, it is. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and, and keeping in mind that the coming out process is sort of multi-phased and multi-tiered, right? Because you have to come out to yourself before you can come out to somebody else. Well, and to so your point, me- I mean, I thought, I think you said something really fascinating was, was your, you said, um, when I come out, not when I came out or when I talk about my husband or whatever, you're like, when mm. I come out, it's, and we've heard this time and time again in this season is you're coming out constantly. And sure. we had uh, a really good friend of mine on, um, who's a gay woman. And she came out like that early two thousands also, and almost was eerie how similar you guys, mm-hmm. you know, what your vibes are, because she said, even now I will find a way to drop in uh, something about my wife. Like I'll just drop it in somewhere, even though it feels really forced, I'll have to say something, but going back to the part about you know, it forces you to hurt someone. I, I guess like I was hurt personally because, you know, I was a beard and then all this stuff. But I think Mm -hmm. about my boy, that boyfriend, the previous girlfriend before me. Oh, they dated for a year. She was like, I think you're gay. And he villainized her. So not just Ooh. broke up with her, you know, that she was a beer, that she got her heart broken or her feelings hurt, mm-hmm. but he villainized her to other people. Like, she's such a bitch and she's just upset and like would say horrible things about her. And I think that I take a special exception to because it's one thing where you're forced to do something because you're not out, but now you are actually be smirching someone else's entire reputation. I thought she was a horrible person because I was friends with him and not with her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she probably was a lovely, or she could have been a lovely person. Yeah. She probably was a perfectly fine person. It was probably fine. I I never remember having any negative interactions with her ever. I'm like, my my, uh, internal monologue is going in like 30 different directions here because I'm like totally torn. The first thing that sticks in my head is so you identified that you thought she was a terrible person right and one of the things that you thought made her a terrible person was that she was spreading rumors that he was gay correct right yes which has within it a an implied assumption that calling somebody gay is a negative bad thing by 1998. Sure, yeah. Mm. Yes. Which means that being called gay is a negative bad thing, which means that being gay is a negative bad thing. Where I'm torn here is on the one hand, he destroyed her mm-hmm. in like a horrible, awful, terrible way. Mm-hmm. But there was also a certain element of self-defense to that. And truth, I mean, now that you say it like that, it because he hadn't come out, it was a rumor spreading at that time because there was no... But also she was right. Right, but like rumors can be correct. I mean, oh my God, those people right. are getting divorced and you haven't heard that, but then they get divorced a year later or whatever. I mean, he didn't come out for like two years after 
mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, okay, right. back to you. I didn't come out in college because I, but by the time I figured out I was gay, I was the straight guy at the theater school. And I had the reputation for being the straight guy. And it seemed too hard to me to change that perception to like take everybody for a big left turn. And so I just decided to wait until after college to come out. At one point, uh, my friend Nick, he straight up called me out for being gay. And I looked at him, I was like, dude, you're the only one who knows. And he goes, no, everybody knows. And at that point, like, I couldn't function. Like, I had no sense of what to do with myself. All of my veneer suddenly had disappeared. And this was 2007, maybe? So this was after Will and Grace. This was after mm-hmm. Queer as Folk. Like, that kind of stuff. You know, that, that stuff even then was hard. Yeah. Um, and now being in a small town, you know, we're about... 49% Democrats and 51% Trump voters. And there are still moments where I have to sort of make the conscious decision that I'm not going to not tell this person. Or we had contractors come fix our chimney the other day or a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, oh, shit, what's going to happen when they realize there are two guys who are living here? And it still is part of part of life. Yeah, your thought process. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I want I want to contextualize for our audience in 1997 and 1998. You know, we're t- we're talking now in 2021. Mm-hmm. So this is 25 years ago. Right. Which cultural context, cultural understanding, the attitude toward the LGBTQ community has drastically changed. Yes. It was October 12th of 1998 when Matthew Shepard was beaten, tortured, and left to die in Wyoming. So we are talking about you having a wrestling with your identity at the very time when the world was saying, not only would you die as a gay man of HIV because right? Right. But also it is not safe to come out. We're going to kill you and that's fine. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I think that's important context, especially for a lot of our younger listeners. Absolutely. Nowadays people are like, coming out in like middle school and coming out in high school and I'm non-binary and I'm this, and they're just living their truth, which how beautiful. And also for people to understand that that be ability to live your truth is hard fought, hard won, and comes with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and sometimes death. Yeah, that is one thing that ties together all, I'm gonna say secondary minority groups. You know, obviously being a woman is not the same as being a gay man, is not the same as being a black woman, is not the same as being a trans person. But there are, you know, it's all different chapters of the same book. And I think just as we need to be reminded that if we don't keep fighting for it, abortion rights are going to disappear. We have to be reminded that if we don't keep fighting for it, marriage rights are going to disappear. And you know, now it's time to start fighting for bathroom rights and for medical procedures and all these kinds of things for trans folks who are the next step or the the current step and the past step and the future step, but the one that like we are the farthest from solving. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's so easy to forget that. Because we look around and we see, you know, we see the kinds of battles. Mm-hmm. I don't want to minimize, for example, when two gay men or two lesbian women are told, no, you can't have your ceremony here. No, I'm not going to do this for you. You can't come to prom. 
It's still an infringement on civil rights. And it's more than that, it's a denial of humanity mm-hmm. at a level which, like you said, secondary minority groups always right. experience on some level all the time. That is a world away, an entire sphere outside of, if I say I'm gay, someone might beat me up and kill me. Right, right. And I will say this, coming out, there is a weird way in which I am grateful that coming out was as hard as it was and as much of a big deal as it was because you have to get to the point in order to come out where you decide that you have to be true to yourself and what you believe in and what your values are, regardless of the response that you're going to get. And when you come out to your parents and my parents are progressives and they're some of the kindest people I know, that was still the most, the most terrifying moment of my life, literally of my life, because you, you can't say mom, dad, I'm gay without an implied. And I recognize you might throw me out and that has to be okay because you do at some point have to choose yourself over Mm -hmm. other people and their expectations. And I can't think of a more useful lesson or growing experience that a person can have. Yeah. What was hard for you and, and what it was like to actually then choose yourself, like, you know, the, the sort of puts and takes conversation you were having in your head, Oh, this is good. This is bad, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And what eventually, you know, what tilted the scales? in a crude metaphor. No, that's actually a great metaphor because it, it is, it's sort of like a teeter-totter and like you start here and then it sort of slowly goes. And at some point the marble rolls to the other side. I don't like lying. I love it. <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm good, good at, at it. it. You're right. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> I didn't like not being honest with my parents. Are you an only child, Mark? No. No, I've got one older brother who's a year older than you Kosha. Um, he's the good boy, married with two adorable children. What's his name? Ken. Oh, I know Ken Perry. Okay. <laughs> yes. I was like, you must yeah, we know were, him. We were in geometry class together. I know him. I know Ken Perry. Of course. Okay, yeah. I, I was like, why am I not remembering? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. You know, at it, it, it one point, like, I just, every time I looked at him, I was, it was clear I was hiding this from them. I am fairly confident that my mom found some of my porn at some point, but I can't be certain about that. But so I had actually gotten a book. I was in New York. I bought a book from the Columbia University bookstore. It was by an organization called PFLAG, Parents and Families of Lesbians and Gays, which is an amazing support organization. And it was like, what to do when your kid comes out to you? Alicia said the same thing. Yep. She bought yeah, a book I told you. for her mother yep. and was like, I'm gay here. Maybe this will help you. That's kind of exactly what it was. Because my mother's an English teacher, or she was. She's retired now. And my mother likes to know the curriculum. and She likes to do it right. She likes to know <laughs> that she's following the rubric, right? And I actually read this book before I told him. And I like snuck it around, around New York City, because I didn't want anyone to see me reading. Mm. That's how scared I was at the time. You know, one of the things that it said to me, or that it said was, we get it that your image of your child has changed completely. 
And your expectations for marriage are now maybe different or kids or that kind of stuff. And it's going to take some time for you to sort of reconfigure yourself. And that's got to be okay. And that's the thing that stuck with me was, you know, a lot of people are tired of telling other people how to treat them or like, just learn about racism on your own. It's not my job to teach you. My feeling, and I think my generation of gays, which is like three generations ago, because a gay generation is about five years. We felt that it was our job to teach other people our stories. And so I remember, like, I literally sat my parents down and did the whole, like, mom, dad, can we talk? I have something important to tell you. Mom, dad, I'm gay. And so my mom, her initial response was, are you sure this isn't just a phase of yours? And I was like, no, this is, this is legit. And my dad kind of got really, really quiet for a very long time. And it was the scariest, probably 10 minutes of my life. And he like paced from like his basement to the garage, to the John Wayne movie that he was watching. Like all these like really masculine spaces. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, I shouldn't that, laugh at that, but that it's like the John Wayne movie yeah, says it. Yeah. Over the top. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? He like poured whiskey and he's like, I'm gonna have a cigar. Like, <laughs> Lights his cigar. <laughs> Shoot some guns off in the air. <laughs> so he comes back and he goes, the most beautiful thing in the world. He asked me if there was anyone he needed to meet. And I was like, no, there isn't. I just wanted you to know this. And he goes, uh, well, I want you to know that Anybody that you want to bring here is welcome here, even if they're French. Very nice. Because this was during the like Freedom yeah. Fries. Sure, right. Very nice. Oh, that is kind of that is kind of the perfect thing to say. Right. It throws in a dad joke with it, and he goes, "I can't guarantee you that this is going to be the easiest thing in the world for you, but I promise you, nobody is going to say nothing in my house, not more than once, anyway." which was like badass. But then he followed up with, but I don't know if I can let you drive my truck anymore. <laughs> because that was, that which, was a macho thing. He, he was, yeah. It was a <laughs> macho thing, but he was kidding. He was kidding. And I knew we were okay the next day when I was like, gonna, I was living with them at the time. Um, and I was like, I'm going to go to the bookstore or something to like get out of the house, probably sneak a cigarette. And he goes, hey, take the truck. And he threw me the oh. keys, oh. which is like really sweet. But then I also remember a joke that was like, so does this mean you can no longer help me drywall the basement? Oh. Right. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe if I can wear my tap shoes, it'll be fine. <laughs> You're like, does this get me out of drywalling the basement? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so then uh, he actually ended up having a much easier time with it than my mom did. Um, my mom wouldn't talk about it for several years. Only later found out she was afraid she would say the wrong thing and hurt me. And so it wasn't a, I refuse to talk about this. This was, I'm not comfortable with words and things yet. Come to find out later that she had gone to the Barnes and Noble, like two towns away. So no one would see her. And she read like all of the books on the gay shop. And I still have, she actually mailed me with an inscription a book called The Best Little Boy in the World Grows Up about a guy who, you know, was kind of my situation, a suburban kid, college, whatever, came out to his parents and it was like his memoir of that journey for him. Do they not like your brother? Because (laughs) like the best little boy is Mark. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, he's he's actually he's the he's the uh, he's the golden child. He's um, he's the A child because he lives sort of down the street. And he gave them the grandkids. And you were in. Cl- I I do recall you not being very close with your brother in high school. We were not. Um, we started getting along once we were both in college, and now we're actually pretty close. So he's also actually also a lawyer and also an insurance lawyer, but not construction. So wow, we do that like boy thing where we bond over talking about work and like yeah, yeah, law stories. But I am the godfather to both of their sons, and Michael is the favorite uncle. Um, so we have actually ended up pretty close, really close. Yeah, that's awesome. How did yeah. your brother take it? Oh, so this is a fun story. Um, I accidentally came out at their uh, rehearsal dinner for their wedding. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, that was that was great. Um, so they had bought a townhouse that they closed on right before the wedding. At the rehearsal dinner, I had a couple of drinks with him and the rest of his buddies and whatever. And afterward, they were like giving some friends of his the tour of the townhouse. I made a comment about the wall being burgundy instead of red or something like that. And his best friend's wife goes, what are you, gay? And I was like, yeah, is that okay? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, or it's a good way to put someone exactly. in the place. That's, it was, not it very, was. And that's, that's exactly a very right. inappropriate Yeah, and that was very pejoratively spoken it was yeah. it was and 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 she had sort of she had meant it jokingly and like she and i are actually cool and we're sort of friends now sure. um it was just sort of like crickets started chirping <laughs> and then my brother kind of goes okay and then we, so he didn't know nope i had made the choice and i told ken and aaron i didn't want a plus one for their wedding because i didn't want to make it about me i didn't want it to be like oh mark's boy but i also didn't want to bring a girl and you know, be lying about it. But that obviously wasn't how I had intended to do that. He later, bless his heart, he was like, just so you know, I don't care. And he was like, not that I don't care about you, just that I don't care any more than if you were straight. Yeah. Um, which is also a perfectly correct thing to say. So that helped a lot then too. This is not at all the same because it's my child. And it's also now, but as Kosha knows, uh, I my older child it came out as non-binary about a year ago year and a half ago what pronouns do they use they them they them Mm -hmm. uh will also be okay with she her um because this child is a has a female body was fine with that and particularly with people like grandparents or aunts and uncles who don't see them very often Uh they're like i'm not it's not worth sometimes it's easier just not to have to deal yeah i get it i was gonna say in response to you know mirroring what your brother said like I don't care like when my kid came out to me and said I'm non-binary it was like okay you're this identity is a very personal thing I'm I'm your parent I'm here to see how you move through the world if you come if your next identity is now you're a hummingbird I'm not going to understand that but I don't care if it's important to you it's important to you but I'm not going to put any stakes in the ground about your gender identity or your sexual identity yep uh, what I care about is like, what kind of person are you? Right. Uh, so Michael and I, well, Michael really, but I have helped a lot with it. Michael runs an event that he called the Male Dancer Conference. This event brought together uh, like 125 boy dancers, mostly ballet, 
from around the world. One of the things that we worked very hard on because uh, number one, we defined uh, male inclusively. You identify as male, you wanna be male today and you weren't yesterday, great, come on in. One of the things we learned was really important to say because you know, a lot of these kids, I think some of them were on a gender journey, definitely a bunch of them were on a, a romantic orientation journey. Every single part of you is welcome here. And it's not just that we tolerate you, it's not just that we, you know, are whatever. We love that you have that weird, unusual thing that is different from everybody else because that makes you you and that's fucking fantastic. That's awesome. Fantastic. That's amazing. So what's the organization called or the event? So the event was called the Male Dancer Conference. Conference. It was part of an organization called Boys Dance 2, which supported boys who dance because most of the dance world is sort of reverse misogynistic. Because, yeah. And I know, Koshi, you and I talked about how um, homophobia is really just a subset of misogyny. And we can come back to that yeah. too. But, you know, these are all boys who are bullied for not being boy enough. Some of them are bullied by the girls in their dance classes and that kind of stuff. And most of them are the only boy in Miss Mitzi's Ballet Academy in, you know, Poughkeepsie, Ohio. And this was the only place that they ever were around this many boy ballet dancers. And it's tough in 2019 to sort of differentiate a male space because on the one hand, these are boys that needed that. On the other hand, mm -hmm. you don't want to be dismissive of the girls. And you don't want to try to be a, a harbinger, an arbiter, an arbiter of what qualifies as male and what doesn't. And so we sort of just had to take a open the door and come on in and we're here for you. Kind of, a, kind of an approach to that. That sounds really fascinating. I would love to hear more about that obviously not from you because that's not your thing to talk about sure. but that would be really really fascinating to hear uh he's actually at the grocery store buying groceries for my family oh no not today this, this is your story <laughs> yeah this is your story but we can uh talk to him later like what's it been like on your professional journey new york of course waiting tables i wouldn't necessarily call that your professional <laughs> journey but it did get you into construction eventually yep yes yeah. So everyone I work with knows that I'm gay. I talk about my husband all the time. Um, I do wear nail polish in a professional setting, um, usually sparkly. You know, I haven't really, you know, it, it, be, uh, gay is a weird minority in the sense that you can turn it on and turn it off from a fitting in standpoint. So if I'm in a situation, like if I, if I'm in a courtroom in South Carolina, mm -hmm. I can talk like a contractor. And if I'm in San Francisco, my S's get a little bit zingier and, you know, my hand gestures change. I have noticed that I work better with women and with people of color than I do with white guys, which is useful information. Um, and I don't know, actually, I, this is the first time I'm considering that it might be because of a respect thing or a homophobia thing. Or, or an a, otheredness thing. Like we both understand being othered. An otheredness thing could be. You don't have to talk about it. And I don't have to worry about yeah. you flexing on me as a, as a hegemony. 
Yes. Well, and, and, you know, the straight guys are all bonding over basketball and the football and are you a Cubs fan and whatever. And I don't have to sort of deal with that bullshit. Right. You know, my ladies. And, and, and part of that is by choice. You know, I've definitely surrounded myself with, so I work in all 50 States. So I have sort of two sets of lawyers in each state. And for the most part, I get to choose who I want to hire. And I go out of my way to hire women, people of color and queer folks. That is partly because I work better with them, I've, I've noticed. And partly because a lot of my girlfriends from law school have pointed out that one of the reasons they hear that women don't make a partner as much as men do or as soon as men do is because the client wants to send work to the men, not to the women. And since I assign two or three new cases to lawyers every day, I'm sort of in a good position to help solve that problem. And so I do go out of my way. If there's two lawyers at a firm that I like, it's going to go to the woman. It's going to go to the, you know, the black guy. And that's not to say that I won't hire a white guy or don't want to, or anything like that, but you know, everybody's got enough work to go around. Well, and you're saying, and you're saying like all things being equal, right? Like their resumes are the same. They're at the same firm. They've been there. They're the partner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will, you know, there's a kid who uh, he's, I don't know, maybe 35, just made partner. He's one of the gayest sounding human beings that I've ever met in my life. I absolutely go out of my way to send him extra work. There's a certain amount of familyness, mm-hmm. you know, to that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also a really good lawyer and he wins cases for me. So, but yeah, and, and there are times like I'll send it off to Deborah and she'll go, oh no, this is closer to Lou's office. So Lou's going to take it. Okay, that's fine. Give it to Lou. Mm-hmm. Being the white guy who also knows what it's like to be othered, it, 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 it affects your decision-making and, and you feel an obligation to reach the hand out to help even the playing field for other folks that maybe aren't as level playing field. Yeah. I don't know. No, absolutely. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things you just said um, that we heard in our first season, when we talked to first generation individuals is this idea of, of passing basically Uh, Kosha and I, and a lot of the first generation people that we interviewed we wear our otherness on the outside of ourselves. Right. There's no way that I could walk into downtown Chicago or literally anywhere in the world, except for maybe India itself, and that somebody <laughs> wouldn't know I was Indian. Right. Or somehow, especially in the U.S., like I'm not a white person, right? It's sure. on my face. Um, whereas we talked to a couple of people in the first season and they they were first generation people from some you know from eastern europe the experience of the internal otherness like what happens in your family and things like that absolutely but the external otherness is very it's non-existent Mm -hmm. and you were just saying look when i go to south carolina i know how to code switch i know how to fit in Mm -hmm. if you are you know and you've said that if if i'm a black man straight or gay, cisgender or, you know, transgender, there's no way I can pass for not a black man. Right. Right. I stand out. Yep. And that goes back to what Koshi was saying before about coming out all the time and having to make that choice. Mm. And that's actually sort of, well, one of the reasons that I, I love what you guys are doing this podcast, because it, it, that was our political strategy in the 90s was tell your story 
you know, that's what the National Coming Out Project was. The sense that the reason that, that, I don't know, studies, whatever, had shown that people who knew gay people were much more likely to vote in our favor on political issues or much less likely to beat somebody up for being gay. And everybody knows gay people. They just don't necessarily know that they know gay people. You know, the, the stories that you guys are telling about, you know, asexual people, non-binary people, trans people, these are the important stories for people to know because it makes people human. It makes these weird stories human. And I even said to Kosha before, I, I, I feel a little bit guilty being on this podcast because I feel like I'm the old story, right? My story was groundbreaking in 1999, 2006. And now my people have come so far that the stories we really need to be hearing are from the trans people and the non-binary people because those are the voices and the, the um, role models that need to be out there right now. Part of being the old guard is reminding people, at, to Shalushi's point, that I was the new guard at one point. This is not, we cannot take this for granted, you know, that this has always been the case. And I think having some distance and yet still remember, I mean, last season we had um, several Asian Americans on, you know, East Asian Americans, mm -hmm. and they're going through hell right now. I've been incredibly disappointed by like the older generation brown folks, like my, our parents' generation, who are, I'm like 2001, right? Like September 11th was not that long ago. I remember mm -hmm. being told to go back to where I came from. We were hated. My dad yeah. stories about being scared to go into a movie theater and stuff like that. And I'm like, y'all forgot how much it hurt and how scary it was. Mm -hmm. And now we're not stepping up for the East Asian community. Right. Well, I, I very much respect your, your point. And you're saying like, are you sure you want, you know, an old married mm -hmm. white guy on? I'm like, <laughs> I think it's really important to, for the old guard to continue to remind everybody yeah. that it was not that long ago. Right. Well, and first of all, stop calling me old. Second of all, <laughs> you called yourself middle age. Also, I'm older than you. <laughs> the middle guard. Call him middle the middle guard. guard. Middle yeah. guard. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because my cohort, we don't have any old gay people to look up to. We have Ian McKellen, but basically we lost an entire generation and a half of gay men. And so we don't really know what it looks like to get old for us, especially with uh, gay men more than gay women, especially, you know, we don't have the kids that so many people rely on for a little extra income in their old age. You know, are gay people going to be welcome to live in the same nursing home rooms as their spouses? That's kind of uncharted territory for us. I have a, I'm going to say mentor, but she like doesn't actually know who I am. Her name is Alexandra Billings. She's a trans actress and a, like an HIV activist. She was on Transparent. She's currently in Wicked on Broadway. Um, I've known her since college when I was an usher at a show she was in in uh, Chicago Shakespeare Theater. She's, I don't even want to guess how old she is because she'll be offended, um, but she's well older than I am. She's had HIV since she was since 1985, I think. 
Um, and she is like the only trans person she knows of her age. I mean, there are a few others, but there are not 75 year old trans mm -hmm. women. Yeah. Um, and she has said that seeing what a trans body looks like at her age is always surprising to her and other kids, you know, now have sort of these parental figure role models that they can look up to, to see what it is to be a reasonable grown ass adult as a gay person. Cause for me, my role models for a gay man was Will and Grace mm -hmm. and Sean Hayes on Will and Grace. Like that's what I'm going to be. Mm -hmm. That doesn't fit me. I'm pretty Will Truman, but. One way to be a gay man. Yes. And it's a yep. valid. And a perfectly yeah, exactly. valid one. It's a valid yep. way to be a gay man, but it is not the only way to be a gay Correct. man. Correct. Right. And it is not my way to be a gay man. And there was a big controversy with Will and Grace that, you know, Will was not ever allowed to be in a satisfying, real mm -hmm. uh, relationship. relationship. Except for with Grace. Except for with Grace. Right. And that's, and that's not how gay people are on TV anymore. You know, I even think back to Queer Eye. Remember Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? That first Fabulous yep. Five, they were very flamboyant. And Super gay! Exactly. Uh -huh. And they were like, manscaping! And, oh my God, you drink Bud Light. You should drink this fancy cocktail. And it was all right. this outside work. Now, when you look at the Fab Five and Queer Eye, now this new generation, it is like... Mm -hmm it's all internal work it's all you can be the best version of yourself the, none of them are overtly flamboyant i would say jonathan right. is right he's campy though he's, he's campy, campy though and that's a difference he owns that campiness as part of his personality versus you're a gay person you have to act like this right and i also noticed to your point even the like skincare hair care stuff which could go the route of like, your skin is oily and gross, <laughs> really comes from a place of this is going to make you feel better. And this is going to make you more confident. And this is going to build up your insides by taking pride in who you are and how you can show yourself to the world. And I think that's a big difference. I wasn't kidding when I said that a gay generation is five years. Yeah. Because I have a cousin who's five years younger than me and her coming out was completely different from mine. Mm -hmm. So, and thank God for it. Thank God for it. This idea that you would want someone to suffer like you had to suffer means that you actually are still experiencing that trauma. Well, I went through it, so now you need to go through it because that's what- You're still suffering, right. Oh, that's what it takes, or you have to pay the price or you know, pay your dues or whatever. Why, why? Actually, why should one have to pay the price? Why is the price to live your life as a, as a gay person or a trans person, mm -hmm. personal trauma. When we know the outcome of that is suicide. Right. Yeah. Right. I think the other thing I just wanted to point out, right, and, and why it's so important to hear stories from people at all stages of, you know, sort of a movement. And you, you brought it up earlier. The pro-choice movement is really at a pivotal, we're at a crisis moment. Yeah when it comes to abortion rights. And, you know, it was in our grandmother's generations that women were dying of illegal procedures. How quickly we forget, but what did, what did that movement do? After it became legal, it became a private matter and nobody told those stories mm -hmm. up until maybe like five or six. I don't, I wanna, I don't wanna say 
it was only five or six years ago, because I know so many of my reproductive justice colleagues have been working on this for a very, very long time. But what social media does is elevate that stuff in a way that no billboard, no newspaper article, no one-on-one -on -one conversation could ever do. And now there are ongoing uh, Faith Out Loud does this great 40 days of abortion against the 40 days of life protest. And there's a lot of shout your abortion work, which is tell the story. Come out. Come out. It's a different kind of coming out, right? All these t-shirts that say everyone loves someone who had an abortion. Yeah. Everyone loves someone who's gay. It's it's a similar path. Yeah, I, I, I would say it's exactly the same kind of coming out. It's, it's opening up yourself to a vulnerability of speaking your truth in, a, in regard to a thing that someone else might find immoral. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, is none of their business to disagree with anyway. Absolutely. I told a story, um, this happened before I actually had my daughter. And it, it, so I always say like, I worked really hard not to get pregnant and, you know, for however, 15 years of being sexually active. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I had the hardest fucking time getting pregnant. It was like, we went through infertility and two miscarriages. And I was like, uh, if I had known uh, I could not get pregnant, <laughs> I'd been like, eh. I mean, you know. This would have made dating a lot easier. I had my own sexual yeah. walkabout, but man, I really could have like <laughs> gone for. I love yeah, that term. Yeah. And like, I used to say, I used to, like, I used to say like, I had like a slut phase because like I, I, I had, still say that. I had sexual intercoursing with various people, some of whom I don't remember, but, but, you know, it, you know, I stopped saying that when, you know, I'm like, that's slut shaming myself. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. So I, I started calling it a sexual walkabout, which I was like, I, that definitely that's what true. happened. And it happened soon after two gay men broke up with me because I was like, <laughs> I need to validate myself here. But, um, why was I talking about this? Oh yeah, so getting pregnant and stuff, and then you just just bragging about having. I know, a lot of I just sex. like <laughs> lots of partners, and so I have not had an abortion, but I until I wanted to get pregnant, I absolutely did not want to get pregnant. So I was like, if I had, if I was pregnant on accident, I would have gotten a termination. And I didn't say that to my mother-in-law, but I remember we were talking about um, something. She, in front of me and my, my husband's brother's wife, right? His sister-in-law goes, no daughter-in-law of mine will get an abortion. And she wasn't saying it like in response to something I was saying, but it was in this general conversation and I didn't say anything. And my sister, we, we pivoted, my sister-in-law pivoted and we talked about something else, but, um, I, I still think about it. this was, you know, 10 years ago or something. I still think about it. Like mm -hmm. just the fact that she felt like she could say that and have that carry weight. And I bet it did yeah. carry weight, right? No, not with me. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Here's the thing. The way that it would have carried weight is if we needed a termination, I, we wouldn't have told her. So sure. to your point, yes, it did in the way that we knew where those boundaries were, if it came to that. It didn't direct my decision-making on if I, we would have had to terminate anything. But I think it was like the fact that this woman who, 
isn't going to the doctor with me, doesn't, isn't peeing on sticks with me or anything like that, like would have thought that that was something that would have impacted, you know, my decision, I think like speaks volumes to, to what you're saying about like those stories. You know, I'll, I'll compare that to, you know, the, the old school. Well, I wouldn't let my kid be gay. What would you do if your kid said he was gay? Yeah. No son of mine is going to be married to a man. Yeah, exactly. So, so my, my instinct on that is if I were in a position where I needed to have an abortion and I was sitting in the stirrups waiting for it to happen, that voice would be ringing in my ears sitting there. Um, and that's not to say that yours should be or shouldn't be or whatever. And obviously I don't really get a vote on any abortion stuff because it's none of my business, but that kind of unsolicited, uh, I will say often conservative sort of gatekeeping or uh, uh, dictation of morality mm -hmm. is yeah. how we keep minority folks in line, right? We tell them what is acceptable. No, don't kneel that way. You protest some other way or you know, don't come out. We're gonna, we're gonna put your picture in the paper so you get fired if you go to a gay bar. You know, that's what the Stonewall Uprising oh, was about. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those sorts of uh, social threats is how we police one another. And it's exactly the same, whether it's trans people or, you know, all women everywhere. Yeah, yeah we're yeah. going to look at your parts before you pee to make sure you're in the right bathroom. Correct. Right. Yep. Yep. Pull down your pants so I can see if you can be in the soccer Right. I think what's also really fascinating about that, right, it's, it fits into what both various layers of white supremacy and then the patriarchy. And there's, they, they come together so well in, um, in Protestant, in Protestant, white Protestant mainstream America, I would say, which is like policing people of color and policing anything below the manliest of men. Right. Women and children and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so a lot of that, the whole white supremacy outlook is there's a right way to be a person. Yeah. And it's a white cisgender, heterosexual male working in a non-elite you know, field, right? Mm -hmm. Work with your hands, you're a real, real man. Um, and then it's sort of, you know, then you intellectualize, it goes down a bit, blah, blah, blah. And if you're a woman, well, it's going to be real tough for you because you're already wrong in some ways. <laughs> uh, if you're gay, you're already wrong in some ways. Um, it's fascinating, right, that people would think that would be a choice. The most fascinating thing is like, if you could choose not to live a life where you were worried about how you had to tell people you were you all the time, would you ever... Would you choose anything else? The way I used to explain it is if I was going to get my ass kicked every time I wanted chocolate ice cream, I would just switch to vanilla. Exactly. That is a perfect metaphor for <laughs> what, what you can do is force somebody to choose to live a life in misery and depression and silence. Correct. That's the choice that they are making. And we know that leads to suicide. Like we know statistically that makes suicide. Correct. We've said this several times on the podcast, but you brought it up earlier, which is, you know, your mom fully well-intentioned, I think is, you know, well, what if this is a phase? Is this just a phase? And I think it's like, okay, so 
your point was like, no, but also what if it is? There are phases that you have to live through phases, being a new mom, being a newly married person. All of those things are phases that if you force someone not to go through them, it doesn't make them not go through it. It makes them go through it. It just makes it harder. Exactly. Or, or not go through it because they killed themselves. Yes. Yes. Well, and uh, to your point earlier, like, uh, what if it is just a phase? What if it is a choice? We went through that whole political movement of like, it's not a choice. It's genetic. Who cares? What if it is a choice? I'm allowed to choose this. No, you're only allowed to choose whether or not you wear a mask. That's the only choice that we get in this country. Yeah. You hit it on the nose. I mean, that's, that's a brilliant point too, which is like the inherent morality and judgment in like, well, I'm only, I'm live, I'm gay because it's not a choice. Actually, you can be gay because you want to be gay. Right. Whether it's a choice or not a choice is irrelevant. I, this is who I am. Right. Then you don't choose it. Yeah. If you don't like it. I'm a human being and I'm, a, I, I'm afforded respect and dignity by the fact that I'm a human being, not because I have, a, I have no choice but to be gay. I really actually appreciate that, that little bit of like, roll the shades up on this thing because you're right. It isn't, who cares if it's a choice or not? Right. Well, and that, that also speaks to why a full wedding ceremony with clergy and, you know, a hundred of our friends and family and suits and ties and that kind of stuff was important to me because I knew that even, you know, three years ago, there was still a certain amount in my family of like your partner, your friend, Michael, like that kind of stuff. And I needed for my sake a way to go, nope, this is the box that we're placing ourselves in. You know how to interact with this. So we're going to place it like that. And this is how we're going to do it. And blah, 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 um, which Michael didn't really want. But for me, it was, I'm going to teach you how I expect you to interact with me in a way that makes sense to you guys. Well, I think that goes back to the, the gay rights movement moved quickly in this country, partially because there was a fight for gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And when I say quickly, that is relative, right? Like to gay people going through it, it probably felt very, very slow and painful, but I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it 50 years total, which when it comes to basic human rights, when you're not a white cisgender male, that's pretty fast. Yes. Yeah. That's way faster than like slavery. Correct. Correct. So, but you know, I think there were probably a lot of gay men, gay people who were like the institution of marriage and religion and clergy and all like have, has been very traumatic to us. Why are we fighting for marriage? There was backlash on that. Yeah. And it was, you know, even to this day, I think there is sort of a divide between people who want to call themselves gay and people who want to call themselves queer. Um, and queer denotes kind of more of an outsider-ishness. Um, and gay, I think, connotes more of a heteronormativity. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty heteronormative. Like, we have a nice house in the country and, you know, we're going to get a dog and I work nine to five and I get my clothes at Target and whatever. <laughs> And there are other people who are just like, fuck that. I don't need to fit into your tradition. I don't need 
I don't need your approval for any of this stuff. I don't have to pass, right? Yeah, I don't have to pass. I don't want to pass. You know, and it's just like trans people who don't feel like they need to pass as, you know, the gender that they're... Transitioning to. Yeah, thank you. Uh, That is sort of the beautiful thing about rights in this country, I think. You get to choose which direction you want to go and you get to decide what parts of the tradition you want and what parts you don't. There is no tradition or, you know, textbook way of proposing marriage for gay people. How do you decide who's going to propose? I don't know. Who bought the ring? Who gets down on their knee? Who is surprised? Yeah. You know, who's the wife? Those sorts of questions, which was actually really great for us because we got to sort of sit, sit down and think through what we wanted while at the same time I was able to sort of embrace my past, my family's traditions and those sorts of things. You know, there was some controversy that HRC, the human rights campaign became sort of the face of the gay marriage fight because HRC is sort of a traditional lobbying organization that's run by pretty wealthy white guys, you know, didn't have a whole lot of space for people of color or women or trans people, which candidly was part of their strategy was to make us look as normal as possible. And they weren't putting people in front of cameras with tattoos. And this goes back to like the Mattachine societies of the 1950s who would protest for gay rights while wearing suits and ties and women in high heels and, you know, their hair in a bun. When white guys want something in Washington, we can usually get it done. Per usual, most of the groundwork, most of the hard work was actually done by women and trans people, and people of color. They largely, I think, felt left out of the conversation. And uh, I shouldn't say they felt left out of the conversation. They were left out of the conversation because, you know, uh, uh, marriage is not at the top of the list of needs for trans people right now. Not getting murdered is the top of the list for them. And that wasn't the national priority at the time you know, white guy trumps gay guy within me, like as, as far as like social hierarchy goes. And we've had this, we've had bits and pieces of this type of conversation with our guests this season. You know, we had a guest on who is um, asexual and aromantic. You know her. Mm-hmm. She was my girlfriend in high yeah, school. Yeah, Elisa, yeah. Oh, you know each other, okay. Okay, that's a uh, very uh, small world, but um you know, what she was saying was, you know, it's very hard to be a part of the pride movement because uh, the segment of the alphabet that I represent is way down there and no one even really says it ever. It gets, it gets, it's the plus, right? Of the LGBT plus. Yeah. yeah. You know, also hearing that from, from other people, people who, you know, are polyamorous guests talking about how that gets almost fetishized and it, you know, become rather than being part of a normal part of the sexual and relationship spectrum, it becomes about having sex with multiple people while you're married, basically. Right. Um, and so, and so the intersectionality gets lost. Correct. Um, where it becomes a very one note, one approach, you know, it replicates the white supremacy mm-hmm. um, that, lives everywhere in this right. one sector of like, okay, well, look, 
throw out the heterosexual stuff. Great. I'm on board. I vote yes. <laughs> right. The purely heterosexual stuff. That doesn't apply to the LBTQA plus community, right? right. Everything else, we're just going to hold it straight. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in like the most honeyest way possible. We're just going to do it straight down the line. Mm. So uh, white, gay white men who are wealthy, uh, who are cisgender at the top. Mm-hmm. Everyone else falls underneath that. And the further you are from sort of the two, you know, married two kids with the white picket fence reality, whether or not that's with the same sex partner or a opposite sex partner. Right. The further you get disenfranchised, the further you go into the margins. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I, I, I will add to that um, weight issues as well, because um, I think, you know, yes. this the stereotypes have sort of changed over the years for gay men. And it used to be, we were the, you know, the wink, wussy, wimp guy. And then we sort of became the hairdressers and the florists. Mm-hmm. And now we're the muscle bound jock, right? With perfect hair and that all the girls wish was straight. You know, that I, I think that gets compounded by pride parade sorts of things with all the muscle boys oiled up on floats and that kind of stuff. And that's sort of the, the image that we want to project. And I don't know that that's any healthier than any of the other sure. sort of images either. I mean, uh, the, the uh, body image issues run rampant for gay men the same oh, way they do among, you know, women who are ballet dancers or that kind of stuff. All, all women, women, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Me. And I'm definitely not a ballet dancer. It's, it's pretty much all women. Mm-hmm. But... So I have heard from from friends that the the body image issues and the pressure to conform to a certain archetype, you know, if you're not, you know, an oiled up club boy, yeah, then then you need to be a, a bear and it look, has to look like this. So you have to be a twink and it has to look like this. I was just like going to say, yeah, there's like four or five of them. Yeah. But you can't, nothing can cross over. You have to fit into your box. Yes, exactly. you can't just be um, a person. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but this is a really great segue to the last question I have for you. Okay. Which is generally, you know, broadly, what advice would you give? But I think we have come a bit full circle on this issue of I am not this, I am not this, I am me. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, through the common rounds of talking about in the gay community, how you have to fit into a box. Mm-hmm. So, and you don't, fit into any of those really you go back and forth and you're like I wear nail polish but I'm not like I don't you know draw out my s's all the time or whatever it is right I'm not super flamboyant but I do like these things that are typically more feminine Mm -hmm. so what advice would you give for someone who is either coming out or more to our younger listeners Mm -hmm. someone who is trying to figure out how to be them and looking around and seeing like well, I, there's seven outfits on the rack. What mm-hmm. am I going to pick? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and figuring out how to put together your own outfit, your own identity, and not having to fit into a box. I love that image of the garment rack. Because if there's, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that you don't need to wear the same thing every day. You know, sometimes you want to go to the bathhouse and get fucked by 19 people. And sometimes you want to go to church and sometimes you want to play with a puppy. And sometimes you want to sit and have tea with your mother. And all of those options are perfectly valid. And the need to 
stick with one or decide that one is intrinsically better or worse or more valid than another only leads to difficulty and pain. Ultimately, there was a whole movement, the It Gets Better movement, that was very important for a time um, when, you know, gay kids were killing themselves just like nonstop. And I don't know. It's true. It does get better. That's absolutely true. But I also think it's because we get better. And I think the more we grow and gain more experiences and get better at embracing ourselves and the contradictions within ourselves, that's what makes it better. And being able to be true to yourself while also recognizing that you don't necessarily have to define exactly what that means, I think. And, you know, like I said earlier, there comes a certain point in coming out, at least for me, where you have to be able to sort of say, fuck everybody else, I have to do this for myself, not for them. And I think that's really valuable too, because each one of us has a, uh, I don't know, moral compass that is correct. And, and there is that, that thing in you that knows what's right for you that may be very difficult, that maybe not even be something you can do right now or, or be able to handle right now. But the more you can learn to touch that and hold on to that, that makes everything so much better. Wow, that's beautiful and inspiring. And I think very encouraging for anyone who might be wrestling with their own coming out process, but also anything that they're sort of like- Anything. Should I, I need, I, I want to, it feels right, but I'm not sure, I'm scared. I mean, that, is, that is whatever we wrestle with. Yeah, try the outfit on and, and see how it fits. You know, the other thing I'll say, and I talk about this a lot with um, Michael's, uh, the male dancer conference and stuff, it's so important to find your tribe. And that doesn't mean that- Can you do me a favor and use a different word? Because we had this situation. Can Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Appropriation. Cultural appropriation. Yeah. With No, thank you for calling me out on that. We uh, I have been using squad. Found family. Or yeah. found family is another I one. don't want to I don't uh, want to inauthenticate yeah. you. No, 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 no. So if you could just restate that. <laughs> I will, but only if you promise not to edit this part out. Because I Oh, think I will not. I will not edit it out. I appreciate because, that very much. Yeah, this is an important learning experience, even you know, on, on my part. Um, but yeah, find your squad. I like that. Find find the people who share that nugget of what makes you different. Whether that's your choir camp, whether that's your dance camp, whether that's taking an art class somewhere because you really like to paint. But those people who are going to you know get you in a way that you know your original family doesn't um or might not that that lets you feel really authentic and and loves that part of you that other people kind of go Mer? um that's the other advice that's sometimes wonderful. i talk in in 
sound oh, effects. Yes. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> so that actually leads to um, our next question, which is our final and question. Last question. That I get the, yeah. I always get the fun. So she's like, tell us about the trauma and what you would tell your, <laughs> what's yeah, been hard what's been for hard, you? What would you tell the people and... who are thinking about this? And I'm like, tell us about the fun words you say. Families are, and found families, I think are like, are just so they're even worse oh, yeah. sometimes oh yeah um so what are some what is your family act either with your husband or your family or your lawyer groups or you know what are some words phrases so the the one thing the first thing that comes to mind um and it's actually inscribed on our wedding rings the first time i tried to text michael xoxox it autocorrected to zoxox <laughs> and so Zoxox became like a cute little thing. That is, really cute. That is funny. That's Wait, so, so great. So XOXOX is like an actual thing, but Zoxox is not. Correct. <laughs> and it autocorrected to that. Correct. Okay. All right. And then I immediately, of course, had to explain <laughs> that it was, it was an autocorrect <laughs> so that he wouldn't think I was that much of an idiot. And so, like, we even put that on the wedding invitations, oh. and I can't tell you how many, like, text messages I got about the title. Oh, right. Like, um, oh, my God, you spent so much money, that. and it's wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's, Zoxox is good. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah. It does, like, actually. We had a, we were talking to a polyamorous man who was saying, like, with his wife, the word sneeps means, like, I'm going to go take a nap, S-N-E-E-P-S, and then the word smeeps with an M is the same like i'm gonna go take a nap with his girlfriend okay oh that's risky <laughs> but, like, they're, but they're in a polyamorous relationship so they're all right. understanding of the framework i was like oh my god that sounds like a dr seuss book and i go oh, it's a dr seuss book teaching children about polyamory i think zack socks <laughs> is a dr seuss book yeah. teaching kids about like gay sex gay people <laughs> There are certain words that we just repeat when we hear them uh, because we like the word. Michael's favorite word is espionage. It's a good one. It's a good one. It's a good word. Feels very good. And Michael just said thank you from the kitchen. <laughs> um, I sort of feel like I should bring him into this part of the conversation, but like words like cheese, um, cookies. <laughs> Michael goes, "What is this conversation?" <laughs> really, I I like the uh, the name Boomer Esiason. The, like old football guy. I was like, say his name. You will not not smile when you say Boomer Esiason. Boomer Esiason. You have to, yeah. It, the, it's the Esiason, but his first name is Boomer. If it was like, if it was like Matthew Esiason, you're like, okay, whatever. No, no, no. Boomer Esiason. Right. Michael's like, is this why I have to be quiet? I don't. <laughs> My girlfriend, the other goes, Boomer Esiason. Did he smile? Did he Did smile? He smile? He's giggling yes. and talking to himself. He's like, yeah. no, you are that idiot. Remember the Zach Sachs uh -huh. thing? Yeah. <laughs> you were <Yeah>. right. <laughs> honey, honey, what other should I, I kind of want to put you on speaker now and bring him into the yeah, conversation. Sure. Is yes. that okay? All right. Can you hear me? Yes. Mm-hmm. You can hear me. All right. All right. Hi, Michael. This is Michael. Hello, so that, Michael. That's Kosha and uh, the other girl is... Chilushi. Hi, dear. This is a conversation about gay. This is a conversation about gayness. Well, I dress just just like y'all needed me. This is the only turtleneck I would ever wear. 
Well, we're it's a podcast, so no one's gonna see you, but we think you look fantastic. Don't worry about it. Okay. So the question, Michael, is what are the like strange little words and phrases that we use among ourselves that would make no sense to anyone else? So I talked about Zox Zox. That's a, that's such a good one. You you talk about poopy puppy, poopy puppy, poopy puppy. <laughs> that definitely is. And that is like that's when he sees a dog. There is a certain category of dog. Okay. They poopy puppy. Not all dogs okay. are. Poopy I, w- I would I would okay, hope okay. not. Right. But that is clearly. But you, Mark, could explain when Michael would say that. Yes. Or what he means, where other people would be like, "Is your husband having a stroke?" Correct. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Okay. Yes. We do get that a lot. Michael, are you okay? Yeah, that's that's me. Yeah. Uh, I think the most unique thing about the language that he and I speak is that I don't use words. Yeah. So Mark has to do a lot of guessing what I'm talking about. And he always gets it right. And he pretends that he doesn't, um, like he'll get mad. But I'm like, I know you know what I'm talking about. But he mm. won't. Sometimes, like one out of 10 times, he'll refuse to say that he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> just because he doesn't feel like doing but that. But he's like, I should not, it. like, you need to use your words. Like, I say that to my seven-year-old where she'll, like, grunt. Money, use yeah, your words. use your words, Mark sweetie. Has, yeah. Mark has been saying use your words since we've met. Yeah. I spend about two-thirds of my life playing taboo <laughs> with my That's pretty sweet. My mom, she once gave us directions by saying you go this way and that and the back roads. And that was the actual direction that she gave us for how to get somewhere. Now, we knew what she was talking about, oh, this way and that, and then you go on the back roads. But if I, if I gave that direction to anyone else, people would be like, that. <laughs> and we lived in a rural town. So everything was a back road. <laughs> you get out of the town limits and it's all back roads. There's no like, oh, you it's not like getting on like, like 294 or something. But so now when we say this way and that and the back roads, it actually has nothing to do with directions. It means mom said something that doesn't make sense. So yeah, yep. the, I, Femilact is so, it's so fascinating to me fascinating. because it just shows like how just this level of communication. And just knowing one exactly. another. And, yeah. and, and development of the squadness. And you said it so beautifully is, you know, when you connect people, you start seeing them as human and not as that other thing. It's all baked into the idea of like raising up stories and going like, okay, we're different. And this person's story was different and the way they grew up or the way that the struggles that they had, but there's really similar things. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all, I, I like to use the phrase different chapters of the same book or different verses of the same song because I, I really can't know what it's like to be a trans person. But I can know enough about my own weirdnesses. And I don't mean it quite that way, but I can know enough about the things that other people look at me as being weird to know what it feels like when I'm called weird. And I can look at them and go, okay, I believe you, Mm -hmm. you know, I can learn about this and I can support you, even though I can't actually know what that's like. Yeah. And that is the definition of being an ally. So thank you so much for both talking about the work that you've done as an ally, 
but also lifting up an example for us of what it means and how people can live their truth. Well, and, and thank you guys for bringing these stories to the forefront. You know, it's, it's so easy to forget that people who aren't right next to you are also the same as you. The cons- some conservative meme or something. It's like a picture of a drag queen sitting next to a woman with a hijab on the M train in Manhattan. And it's like, this is the world liberals want. It's like, yes. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Come sit next to me. Come sit next to me and tell me your story. And that both of those people, whatever choices they are making in their lives, feel safe and have their dignity and feel like, you know what? I'm going about my life and I have a right to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the world that liberals want. Mm-hmm. And they say things like poopy puppy, poopy puppy. Poopy puppy, poopy puppy, yeah. poopy puppy. And Zaza. Poopy puppy. So, all right, my dear. Thank you so much. We really appreciate having this conversation. It's been a joy. No, I had a great time. I apologize again for being late. I'm going to hold <laughs> no worries. I'm going to hold that against you for a while. So, I'm totally comfortable. <laughs> but have a wonderful time. Say hi to Ken right. for me. Will do. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.